You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 114. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today, we are revisiting the issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. This is a topic that I've spent quite a bit of time investigating, as it was central to the story behind my first film, Scavenger Hunt, which was about the connections between California condor conservation efforts and the issue of lead poisoning from spent lead-based ammunition. This issue has been in the headlines recently. The Obama administration, in its final weeks in office, issued an order to phase out all lead-based ammunition and fishing tackle from use on lands managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, areas that included all national parks and national wildlife refuges. The response to this action was predictable. It was applauded by many conservation groups and provoked lead ammunition industry lobbyists to repeat their claims that there's no proof of lead's negative impact on wildlife populations. Once Donald Trump became our president, his new head of the Department of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, moved to overturn this plan to phase out the use of lead-based ammo on these federally managed lands. Again, a predictable move. Today we are sharing with you an archival interview recorded while we were working on our film Scavenger Hunt with the founding director of the USGS Wildlife Health Clinic, Milton Friend. Milton worked for decades to get lead shot banned from use in waterfowl hunting, and is therefore intricately familiar with the type of political maneuvering that we're seeing right now in regard to the lead ammunition issue. He points out many similarities between his fight to end the use of lead shot for waterfowl hunting and the current incarnation of this fight against the use of lead-based ammunition for hunting generally. Just to be clear, the use of lead shot for waterfowl hunting was officially banned by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 1991, although there were complications with the implementation of this ban, as you'll hear Milton discuss. Although this interview was recorded back in 2012, it remains extremely relevant to our current situation with the lead ammunition issue. Let's jump in. My name's uh, Milt Friend, or Milton Friend, I guess, from the, the formal aspect, uh, I've been uh, blessed, I guess you would say, by having the opportunity to write the concept document for a National Wildlife Health Center and then becoming the first director uh, to implement that program. Uh, So it's kind of like uh, I had a dream and uh, then uh, you have the opportunity to um, pursue that dream in reality and uh, watch it uh, materialize. So I uh, started the program here in January 1975 and um, served as the first and only director uh, for 23 years, at which time uh, Secretary Babbitt asked me to take on a special assignment, um, which was the Salton Sea, uh, a major uh, environmental health issue. And I uh, left this position to 
um, begin a science program out there to provide a foundation for dealing uh, with those issues, many of which were wildlife health issues. How did the idea for the, the National Wildlife Health Center come about? Where did that come from? What was the seed? My interests in wildlife health uh, were uh, stimulated as an undergraduate by an elective course I took in animal pathology, which was basically a wildlife pathology course. And uh, that uh, kind of turned me on to uh, the world of uh, academia in terms of things one could learn about and that were fascinating, never thinking I would have the opportunity to uh, actually work in such a program. And uh, after working for uh, uh, a while uh, in a couple of state conservation agencies, I um, got a position with the uh, um, New York, then called the New York Fish and Game Department, uh, and transferred from my initial position there in uh, upland game bird research to taking on the wildlife uh, pathology and physiology section uh, when the group leader left. Um, minimal training, lots of interest, uh, and a learn-as-you-go situation. Uh, and uh, from there, uh, it things just kind of evolved uh, with uh, an opportunity to uh, go to graduate school in um, University of Wisconsin uh, in what at that time, uh, late 1960s, mid-1960s, late 1960s, if you wanted to know about wildlife disease, you wanted to study it, Wisconsin was the premier place uh, to undertake uh, such uh, uh, investigations, most of it focusing on zoonoses, diseases transmissible between animals and humans. Uh, and so I undertook uh, that effort, uh, which uh, then resulted in my getting a job with the Fish and Wildlife Service as a, uh, a contaminant uh, research biologist in Denver, Colorado. And a year later, I assumed the leadership uh, role for that uh, position. While serving in that position, uh, getting now to your question, um, the, uh, there was an exotic disease that entered the United States called duck plague. Um, duck plague is a herpes virus. It had uh, appeared in, on Long Island, New York, in the duck industry in 1967. But in January 1973, it appeared uh, in full furor at uh, the Lake Andes National Wildlife Refuge, and it killed about 40,000 of the 100,000 mallards that were wintering on the area. And what that event disclosed was that there was not a federal wildlife health program uh, capable of dealing with such events. And uh, as a result of that event and all of the interactions and dialogue that went on afterwards, um, there was an opportunity for me to prepare a concept document uh, for a uh, wildlife health program. And that concept document was reviewed um, at the Washington level by the Fish and Wildlife Service, who I was employed by in the contaminant program. And uh, this decision was made to let's give it a try. Uh, and so January 1975, uh, 
that program was initiated uh, on the University of Wisconsin campus here in Madison. And that was the start uh, of the program. It had a two-year trial uh, situation to prove its worth. And uh, uh, everything is history from uh, uh, that point on uh, as we have uh, developed into a major uh, wildlife health program uh, and probably the most comprehensive one that exists anywhere in the world relative to the resources devoted simply for the well-being of wildlife. Mm -hmm. So we're not a domestic animal disease program, we're not a human health program. Uh, this is in fact focused on providing a similar kind of support for wildlife health. So let's shift gears to, to lead now. What is it about lead that makes it different than other types of um, other, other issues that you, you would deal with in wildlife conservation. Is there something about lead that's different because of the role it plays and has played in our society? I, I think there are some major differences when you consider lead. Um, first, um, I commented that I had been uh, involved with the environmental contaminant program. One of the things that happened in the 1960s uh, with the uh, advent of uh, the environmental era is there was an unfortunate separation, in my opinion, uh, of classes of pathogens uh, into uh, contaminants and disease. Um, that uh, makes no biological sense. It makes no logical sense because what we've set up is a category of a class of agent and then we've set up a category of the result of exposure uh, to those agents as if they're different, okay? Mm -hmm. The only reason we were concerned about environmental contaminants is because of their health impacts on wildlife populations. So lead is simply another one of these agents that uh, causes health impacts on wildlife populations. A difference between lead and these other agents is that the other agents were new technology that came on board, uh, used by society uh, for a variety of situations that they felt were beneficial, i.e. insect control uh, and taking care of plants, trees, uh, whatever. So lead, on the other hand, has been with us since antiquity. And that antiquity has resulted in lead being fairly ingrained within the human society. So we can go all the way back to the Romans and before uh, with lead issues uh, that weren't recognized initially, um, but probably had a major impact in terms of uh, the outcome of the Roman Empire. Um, another factor, and I'll try to connect these uh, a little bit, another factor here is the fact that um, look at us as a peoples. We really evolved uh, as a hunter-gathering society. And lead was a very beneficial uh, component of that society in terms of bullets or fishing weights or, or 
uh, whatever. So now we have a substance that is not, not only proved to be useful in that capacity and later in many other capacities and earlier in many other uh, capacities, but because of its physical properties being very malleable, being very uh, low uh, melting points, uh, its density, uh, it found a lot of really beneficial uses. Um, and, you know, just think of the x-ray apron the dentist used to put over you when you sat down in the chair uh, for your uh, um, examination. Um, we don't do that anymore because of the digital world. But uh, so we have these ingrained uses. Um, and hunting as a tradition and the way we do hunting as a tradition so now we're talking about stepping in and changing tradition. And like the movie, The Fiddler on the Roof, uh, one of the uh, you know, most difficult things to deal with is to change cultural values, behavior, and attitudes towards a way of life that has been very ingrained over centuries. So lead is a much more difficult issue, I think, philosophically uh, for people to deal with uh, than uh, other kinds of uh, disease issues that we have. Um, let me throw in one other uh, situation here, which I think is relevant to other kinds of diseases, which is the question you asked. When we look at contaminants, we look at things that are, whether it's lead or any other one, we look at things that are a direct linkage with humans doing something. We produce them, we use them in a manner that um, serves our, our likings, or when they're found to be uh, adverse, uh, we can reverse that, that process. When we think of disease, issues in the classical sense that disease is used and in the, in the context of the question uh, that you raised, we are dealing with a philosophy that disease is a part of nature. And because disease is a part of nature, it's very difficult uh, to deal with these kinds of things. We just kind of grin and bear it, or we take some actions to mitigate uh, the extent of losses. But we don't see our responsibility, our role as society in creating that. In essence, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about DDT, whether you're talking about lead, whether you're talking about chronic wasting disease in, uh, in deer. We are talking about an outcome from human actions. And it's been very difficult for science and biologists in general, to get that message across that disease is in fact an outcome, it's not a cause, and that is an outcome of human actions and behaviors. So these are quite different, and that makes it extremely difficult because lead is so ingrained to deal with it. We, have, we used to use it in our gasoline. Look at how many years it took to uh, make adjustments there look at um, pediatric care and uh, the known impacts and how many years it has taken to reduce the levels of lead uh, in the human environment uh, to a point where 
uh, we're having hopefully less impact because it's a non-reversible uh, situation. Uh, lead, point, lead paint, it took an awful long time. Now the environmental era of pesticides helped to uh, deal with the, uh, uh, with the paint situation. So it's in part like uh, when the time is right, you can uh, make these changes up until that time becoming right, uh, which is in part convinced by scientific findings, it becomes an excruciating, painful process with a lot of casualties along the way uh, to make that kind of a change. And uh, especially when you're dealing with something that we've become very dependent upon. And I don't see it in any different light than our dependency on uh, gasoline for cars. Uh, there are alternatives that could be developed, are be, being pursued, but it's a fairly similar path in terms of the kinds of resistances. Uh, it's, uh, I think, a pretty similar path in terms of length of progress, length of process uh, to uh, implement a change. Uh, I think that eventually uh, there will be very little use of, of lead. Um, but part of the struggle with getting rid of lead in terms of ammunition is that it's a quite a different situation uh, in the transition of firearms and ammunition than um, one had when we transitioned from black powder and uh, muzzle loaders and those kind of firearms because now we were making a transition that people could clearly see as something that would perform better with the lead issue in terms of the lead shot initially. That's where the major battleground became, is that uh, the cure is worse than the disease. We, in fact, will bring in something to use that will be less effective, and therefore, instead of saving wildlife, we will end up having more wildlife casualties by not using uh, the lead. So the, the balancing act wasn't seen as something that would tip the scale, wasn't seen by many, uh, as something that would tip the scale uh, to benefit wildlife, but in fact would cost more and uh, also cost more in terms of wildlife life. So it's a much more difficult situation. We have made some very substantial progress, obviously, uh, with the uh, substitutions that have been made for uh, uh, lead shot with non-toxic shot, but that's only a small part of the uh, um, ammunition uh, that's uh, being deposited uh, uh, in the wild, and, uh, and the fishing sinkers has been uh, uh, just as volatile uh, and the same kind of arguments. They just they just turned into a process of uh, fish instead of uh, uh, animals, uh, instead of warm-blooded animals. So. What do you know about the, the history of the use of lead in, uh, for ammunition? Lead was the perfect material way back to make ammunition out of because you didn't need high technology. Uh, you could melt. Uh, the substance, one that was a lot of material, uh, it, it was easily mined, it was easily reduced 
two lead, and for shot, you just poured it through a tower, through a screen, into water. Real simple, inexpensive uh, process. Interestingly, after World War II, one of the major sources of opposition uh, to non-toxic shot during the battles of the 70s and 80s actually went forward petitioning uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to use non-toxic shot. Now, that wasn't being done, my, un my understanding, uh, in any kind of altruistic pursuit for protecting wildlife. But lead supplies were diminishing because of all of the lead that was used in armament and other things during World War II. And there was concern that there wouldn't be enough raw material to, to deliver the kind of product. That probably had some personal impacts between the individual who I'll leave uh, unnamed uh, and uh, uh, the agency that carried over into uh, later uh, philosophies. The initial attempts to implement um, non-toxic shot go back to quite a ways. Uh, uh, early 70s, uh, there was uh, attempts to provide non-toxic shot on an experimental basis, and uh, I uh, had the opportunity to hunt uh, on one of the refuges in Colorado uh, that uh, was selected for that kind of activity and uh, was not that impressed with the ammunition, although it would do a reasonable job. Put that in perspective two ways. Um, first, a uh, point I'll come back to, for uh, earlier days in my life, I was a, um, uh, I guess you would say, a professional shooter. I was a um, member of the United States shooting teams that were put together. So uh, I had a fairly substantial history in terms of uh, competitive shooting, uh, both with shotgun and with rifle. The other component of that that I wanted to inject was that unless you get started in the transition of a material, research and development is going to be minimal in terms of investment because you don't know what kind of marketplace you have out there. So to complete that loop, I have been extremely impressed with the capability of industry to develop products that I think is far superior to what I was shooting in those days as lead with the modern steel, bismuth, other, uh, other loads. But you have to keep in perspective that if you're in a manufacturer of ammunition, um, that hunting loads are not your major product. Okay? Target shooting is your major product. You shoot a lot more rounds of ammunition. Uh, and when I was a competitive shooter and shooting uh, high caliber 30 caliber for 300 meter uh, free rifle uh, events, um, uh, I was shooting uh, uh, probably a thousand rounds a week. Okay, one individual. Mm -hmm. mm, all right. That's... Uh, that's a big chunk, uh, as is traps, skeet, sporting clays now, a uh, ton of am ammunition uh, being shot. But we see the same arguments throughout time 
uh, with all of this. Um, the product won't perform as well. Uh, the product is hazardous um, to me as an individual somehow. It is hazardous to the arms that I'm shooting it uh, out of if it's a bullet. Uh, it's not the right configuration if it's a fishing or, or whatever. Uh, um, yet there is a lot of... Uh, I go to Canada once in a while uh, fishing uh, and uh, some of the areas that I fish on are uh, um, non-lead jigs, non-lead... Uh, uh, you know, fishing tackle of the size that would uh, create a, a, a problem. Uh, it's available, uh, and I've actually uh, managed to buy some of that at year-end sales cheaper than, uh, than, than lead. But there's all kinds of ramifications in terms of uh, uh, industry concerns. And so you see strong opposition coming out with basically the same argument I don't care whether it's a fishing sink or whether it's a, a bullet for a rifle uh, or a handgun or a shot for a shotgun. Uh, we continue to go down the same path and uh, um, it's how do we get over that social hurdle uh, so that uh, we can move on uh, with what we're all interested in, uh, the conservation of uh, of wildlife, uh, there you can have your cake and eat it. Uh, you can have the the type of product uh, that will, in fact, perform very well for you, and not uh, take away uh, through poisoning uh, animals that uh, now aren't available for you to harvest if you're a consumptive user of the resource. Now, let me come back to the competitive shooting and personal opinion. I know all my buddies will be uh, ballistic, no pun intended, in terms of, but you know, as a competitive shooter, it uh, doesn't make much difference to me what I shoot. What I need is a level playing field so that everybody is shooting the same kind of situation. And uh, about a year ago, I was in Denmark. Uh, I was invited to participate in a panel looking at the whole issue of lead uh, use in Denmark. Denmark is significant because it was the first European country back in the 80s to go to non-toxic shot. Uh, I was actually uh, involved with some of the dialogue over there uh, inadvertently, but uh, interesting uh, situation to, to get, get involved with. Um, but. Uh, Denmark has uses has been using for quite some time uh, non-toxic shot for trap and skeet shooting, All right. And uh, you can I, I was amazed at the products that were put on the table at that uh, week several day workshop uh, I was at by the arms companies. Uh, I mean, virtually anything you want to uh, uh, to use is available in all gauges. Uh, uh, some of the old arguments, of course, were that um, while you couldn't make non-toxic uh, shells in terms of uh, um, 410 or other small gauges, the same argument has been made in terms of uh, recently, like I said, same arguments come up, well, rimfire ammunition, 22 rimfire, can't do it. Well, uh, it's on the market, it's available, uh, and uh, so we keep 
reinventing the wheel, we keep fighting the same wars, um, and uh, we really uh, need to get out of the situation of adversaries and uh, sit down together and say, how can we move forward so that we all benefit? When did you first become aware of lead and ammunition as an issue for wildlife? Do you recall I made a comment about taking a course in animal pathology mm -hmm. and one of the animals that came in for uh, an examination uh, had lead shot in its gizzard. And uh, that's in fact what it had died from based on the pathology there. And so that exposure, uh, which raises another point about uh, lead. You know, it has been called at various times the invisible disease. The nature of lead is one of a chronic disease. It takes a long time to kill an animal. So it's one animal at a time, and those animals disappear in the wild uh, at a fairly rapid rate from other animals that are surviving by eating them. Uh, and so it is not highly visible, and the timing of those events for waterfowl is typically because of the prolonged period between exposure and death. Uh, takes place after the hunting season uh, when uh, the hunters have left the marshes and the birds are now free to feed in those areas where all that shot has been deposited. So that first case that I saw in the 50s visibly made me think about what was going on. That caused me to then start to research the subject and to see some of the earlier work by the Illinois Natural History Survey, Dr. Frank Belrose and others, in terms of documenting uh, this and going back into the old literature and seeing that, by God, this has been around since the 1800s, uh, late 1800s. It's nothing new. Uh, and then you start to question yourself uh, as a hunter, you know, um, am I contributing to this and what can I do uh, to not contribute to this. Uh, well, uh, I mean, there has to be a product uh, if you're not going to contribute to it. So then I started to get more and more involved in trying to learn as much as I could about it. Um, I was dragged into uh, the situation uh, in full fold uh, in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, actually, uh, when uh, the decline in North American waterfowl populations, mallards and other uh, uh, popular species, was getting to a point. We back up. We had gone through the early '60s, being uh, years of uh, very high continental waterfowl populations, good strong fall flights, high bag limits, um, extended seasons. All right, and then that started to fall off. And if at the same time, we're growing more and more people, getting more hunters out there, more competition. Uh, and concerns now started to be raised in terms of are we wasting a lot of waterfowl? And the answer that was coming out from lots of folks was yes. Well, this was going on in the political infightings that uh, were going on. Um, I was 75, started the health center. Uh, things started to get more and more um, 
heated in terms of the lead situation. And um, uh, I was sitting uh, uh, in the office at desk one day, and the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service walked in uh, unannounced and um, said, I have a problem. Uh, and I said, what's the problem? He said, it's lead. Uh, I needed uh, some help in terms of finding out what's going on here. So in the early 80s, uh, um, mid-80s, this center was given the task of a national um, monitoring program uh, to determine what kind of lead exposure was going on out there. And so we worked closely with states, national wildlife refuges, lots of other folks, and amassed a, a great deal of data uh, that was then um, being used uh, in terms of the discussion processes. That situation became driven to a more intense state by the fact that not only were we finding a lot of lead poison waterfowl, but other species started to appear uh, in the species of concern. So the bald eagle became a prominent player in this dialogue uh, because it was a, an endangered species at that time. Uh, and we started to document a fairly substantial number of lead poison bald eagles, uh, which then created its own set of issues. Well, bald eagles don't feed like waterfowl. How do they get exposed and that, and that sort of thing? And let's just put that aside uh, for the moment. But... Uh, uh, not only did uh, uh, the bald eagle show up on our table, but so did the California condor, a species uh, of current high concern in terms of this issue. And I believe we probably processed the first six lead poison condors from the wild in California. I'd have to go back and look at the records, but we're, we were involved before the condors were taken into uh, zoos for captive breeding uh, situations. So the endangered species issue then became a major issue in terms of uh, the whole aspect. That then brought a lot of the non-governmental agency pressure uh, on this situation, pressure being on the government agencies uh, and, uh, and further caused this whole thing to escalate. We also did some studies here at the center. The De Stefano looked at uh, Mississippi Valley Canada goose uh, flock, which moves in a very uh, regimented way down the flyway. And uh, within that population, uh, within the areas where those are being hunted, there were different regulations. Some were steel shot, some were lead shot, and the study uh, live trap birds to look at lead exposure, uh, and a very clear correlation was shown between exposure of lead in the birds in the wild uh, based on whether steel shot or lead shot was being uh, shot. And uh, so these kinds of pieces started to develop, which started to put a really strong a scientific foundation under the fact that one, lots of waterfowl were in fact being uh, lead poison that uh, in current time 
so that we weren't relying on historic data uh, to say that we had a problem. We had real-time data. Uh, secondly, that secondary poisoning was occurring in other species that ate animals that were killed by lead shot, and that that exposure was particulate lead. It wasn't eating the flesh of those animals. So the residue, in terms of particulate material, that could be brought into um, the system, and then um, basically what you're talking about is bringing a piece of lead into an, an animal, in this case, uh, animals with very acid uh, stomach conditions, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, turning that into a solution, which is absorbed into the blood, uh, and then uh, goes to uh, other parts of the body where uh, damage is done eventually ending in the in the death uh, of the animals. So now we have a, a situation that far exceeds simply the direct mortality, but we have the secondary mortality that is impacting a class of animals that special protection is afforded um, because of their endangered status. And that had a lot of bearing in the court decisions in terms of uh, what was uh, to be implemented. Um, I think there are a couple of other things that are really significant in that, in that whole situation. The data that we were collecting uh, was being used to implement on a transitional basis the use of non-toxic shot. Because to go back to what I was saying before, you have to provide product out there for the user or you deny the user the opportunity for pursuit. There are all kind of economic ramifications associated with that on both sides of the equation, whether you're the producer of product or whether you're the uh, one who is carrying out the activity and that other people like motel owners and others are dependent upon. So it's a, it's a very interwoven uh, situation. So that transition was based on what we were finding, and, and so a map was put out by Federal Cartridge, put out as a part of an advertisement, uh, a map showing county by county where the implementation of steel shot was, because the Fish and Wildlife Service made the decisions based on these and other data of uh, uh, how that map would look. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, uh, if you're a um, when I was growing up, my folks had a small sporting goods store. Well, you order your ammunition the year before, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to know what you're going to order. You're going to order non-toxic shot or you're going to order lead shot. Uh, because if there isn't a requirement, especially in those days, uh, to shoot a non-toxic shot, uh, you can order it, but nobody's going to buy it, all right? Uh, and so uh, this allowed one the manufacturing industry uh, to um, know how much product to develop, where it needed to be shipped to. It allowed the uh, sporting goods stores uh, to make good decisions in terms of what they were uh, ordering. And it allowed the hunters to see what was uh, coming down the line. So uh, what you do is you build in a period so that you can allow people to use their old product uh, 
you know, reasonable amount of time to use that up. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and so the whole transition took place. And, uh, uh, and not only did the transition take place in terms of ammunition, but now we started to have transition in the firearm. And so now we have a three and a half inch 12 gauge chamber that we never had before. We have different kind of choke system. I mean, the whole, all that's new product, okay? That's all new purchase, all right? Uh, so these truly can be win-win situations because um, the sportsman was getting uh, eventually um, much better capability than they had in terms of prior to that time. Mm -hmm. So it uh, can be done, uh, and uh, it was a long, bitter battle. I, uh, like I said, I testified in a number of the court cases. I testified at public hearings, spent a lot of time trying to educate public. Uh, just um, plain uh, and simple talk, not, you know, a whole bunch of, of gobbledygook, but... Uh, um, but probably one of the most important things I think that that uh, got involved with was uh, working with sportsman groups to uh, do their own sampling out there and see what was going on, involving sportsman groups when we had mortality situations so they could come out uh, in the field with us uh, and uh, help pick up uh, birds. And it's pretty overwhelming when you drive up to a marsh uh, I'm a Labrador retriever person, okay, and always used to have a couple of labs. And uh, you drive up to a marsh, you know if evidence that there's any kind of a problem there. It's after the hunting season. Let the dogs out and fill up the back of a pickup truck uh, with carcasses uh, from lead poisoning that you didn't know were there. Uh, that's pretty sobering. And uh, when you're able to involve the uh, the public uh, in these kind of activities, uh, they see and they appreciate the impact it's having potentially on them, and uh, it's a lot easier to convert than from some mandate uh, to do this or that. So, um, major, absolutely major situation that needed to take place that did was uh, a clearinghouse was put together uh, in Iowa uh, on non-toxic shot information, uh, but the shooting clinics that were put together, because it was different, you had to learn how to shoot it. And as a professional gun, if you will, I had a greater struggle making those adjustments because my habits were so ingrained uh, from... Uh, my previous experiences, my wife, on the other hand, who was more typical of many uh, hunters who doesn't pick up the shotgun except when we go in the field uh, the next season, you know, it's been sitting there all year. It was a lot easier for her to make the adjustments. I mean, she didn't really know the difference. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, and uh, so training programs that uh, really helped people to take advantage of the new product, uh, I think, are extremely important. I mean, what was the center's ultimate goal? Were, was it trying to, were, were you working towards a ban, or were you not even thinking about that and just trying to educate hunters? Okay. Were there other groups that were trying to push for a ban in a similar way that there are groups yeah. now that are trying to ban? Yeah, there was 
National Wildlife Federation was a primary player in terms of pushing for ban. As a scientific organization, uh, no, we were not pushing for a ban. Uh, um, recognize I'm a private citizen at this point in time, okay, I've been retired for a number of years, uh, so uh, I don't have any, you know, real connections in terms of uh, uh, the center or anything else at this point in time. But we're a scientific organization producing high-quality scientific information and um, making sure that the information that was being put together uh, was credible from all aspects. And so uh, in terms of the uh, post-mortems, uh, uh, you know, board-certified pathologists were doing a lot of that. And, and uh, lead is, is, any diagnostic work is kind of tricky um, because you, in, in some way people say, well, you find what you look for. Uh, well, good, good, patho good diagnostic work uh, utilizes the pathologist to make the total judgment. And that's why we have all the support laboratories of looking at, at other things to make sure uh, that they're not there. But we never took a position uh, of trying to ban anything. Uh, uh, I'm speaking as a private citizen in terms of, you know, uh, uh, my saying uh, I don't, you know, I would prefer to go in that direction because I see the benefits to, to wildlife. The, uh, uh, but it's the strength of the scientific information that stood up in the court cases because it, uh, uh, it, it met all the challenges uh, uh, that were there. It was changing public attitudes by getting people involved and letting them see for themselves. That's part of education. Uh, so what uh, I uh, spent a lot of time doing was listening to people uh, to see what their concerns were, trying to understand the real concern uh, as opposed to something that's just being passed on in a chain letter or, or something and then address those as objectively as I could. So I spent a lot of time going around and talking with sportsman groups, giving presentations to professionals, to biologists. There was as much opposition within the wildlife community as there was external. You have to appreciate that. I, you know, many of us entered the wildlife profession uh, because of our love of the outdoors and hunting and fishing are traditions, are trapping, are traditions that we brought with us. And uh, those are ingrained in our culture. And, uh, uh, and we're trying to, that's why we went into wildlife conservation, was to perpetuate those species for uh, multiple uses, uh, not just to uh, uh, have them to look at uh, solely. That's my opinion. That's not what conservation it's about conservation is wise use, all right? Some species don't have population levels in which harvest is reasonable, so you don't harvest those species. Others uh, are harvested at various levels as a renewable resource. That just, you know, my beliefs in terms of, of uh, where I, I come from. It's interesting if you look at the history of uh, wildlife conservation in general, you know, we have come from, and just think about settlement of the country and the extraordinary numbers of species and, and 
population densities that were here, passenger pigeon, antelope, on and on and on, heath hen uh, and stuff. And we had no constraints. We uh, were like the kid in the candy shop as society. Uh, we were relieved of the constraints of uh, the European uh, elite that owning the wildlife and and uh, and so it was exploitation and it was exploitation and want and waste and all kinds of other things well as that started to shrink down then uh, in terms of population numbers of species the people who were doing this were now starting to become impacted and my point is if something doesn't have personal value to you it's hard to make an adjustment. And when it has personal value to you, now you want to do something about it to protect your values. So we went from exploitation to protectionism. Now that protectionism was not conservation. Uh, it was simply protecting animals so that we could partition the remaining stock out for a longer period of time. That's not, there's no restoration com component to that. All right, and it didn't matter whether we were talking about animals or their habitat, trees, and stuff like that. I mean, this exploitation was horrendous. So then we protect. Uh, well, unless you restore, uh, you don't have any long-term long sustainability. So we entered the stage of restoration. Restoration, we learned how to do it fairly good for a lot of species. So now we're back to excess animals, and so we transition to multiple use. Again, using species in terms of the context of their numbers and, and whatever. Now we've gone uh, to getting away from individual species and thinking about the relationship of species and the environment and how that affects society in general, all the beneficial aspects. So ecosystem health becomes uh, uh, the situation, all right? And we continue to move along this changing spectrum of uh, viewpoints towards other species. Um, I have grave concerns about where we are now and what I see in the future because I'm old, all right? So uh, my, uh, my values are from past generation. Uh, and uh, those don't seem to be shared uh, to the same, the same way uh, with a lot of the coming generation. And so now we are, uh, you know, I go back to Leopold, first sentence in uh, San Colony Almanac, you know, there are some who can live without wild things and some who cannot. Well, count me in that situation. And wild to me means the habitat and the the whole situation. I'm fortunate to have a son who lives in Alaska, so I uh, get the opportunity to uh, go and share in the wild still, um, but that's diminishing around us. So we're entering now a, a new era of great diminishment of uh, uh, hunting as an activity, uh, great diminishment of uh, wildness uh, as a uh, fundamental value that is preserved. Uh, and, and a lot of this driven by population increases. 
And so the new frontier, as I see it, is urban-suburban wildlife because people are inherently uh, linked to wild creatures, socially, spiritually, um, recreationally, uh, a lot of things. But this is a whole different kind of situations and a different kind of set of problems. Uh, and that, uh, I think, is going to have impact on this other set of issues. So uh, there's some real hard rethinking that needs to be done in terms of, you know, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. And what is, what are the things we need to focus on? Uh, the amount of discretionary funds that are available to pursue a lot of these things are diminishing. One of the good things about conservation is that the private sector, again, when something has value to you, you step up and deal with it. So a lot of the conservation effort is in fact done by uh, NGOs, private citizens, uh, and uh, others. Uh, otherwise, we'd really be in uh, dire straits that I don't think we could ever recover from. So I think I got off the subject from what you were talking about, but I, I get really involved in this stuff. Yeah. Where do you see the situation currently Talking about lead shot here, the ban on using lead shot for waterfowl hunting. I mean, how how effective has, has that been? I mean, what this, where are we at right now with that? Okay, well, the only evaluation, scientific evaluation I've read uh, of that, and I'm sure there are others, was a paper that came out a couple of three years ago um, by Bill Anderson from the Illinois Natural History Survey, retired also, like me, a colleague in terms of those battles in which uh, uh, his data, and, uh, and is published in a scientific journal, adequate peer review and all of that, uh, you know, shows that uh, by making that transition to non-toxic shot, something like 1.3 million waterfowl, it, that may be off a little bit, but that's in the, in the ball game with, with being spared of lead poisoning, okay? That's a very significant, uh, by anybody's uh, count. And uh, uh, so I feel real good uh, seeing that kind of data. Um, but again, uh, go back to the more fundamental studies of exposure that we were looking at with the Canada geese where the correlations are there. You, you can show them, uh, you can pin it down to it's this year's exposure uh, that uh, is taking place. It doesn't you know, last forever. To, uh, in terms of the, there's a degradation in the amount of exposure you could get. So I feel pretty confident in terms of uh, the course that has been taken uh, has greatly benefited the uh, well-being of continental waterfowl and species that might feed on them. So uh, where do we go from waterfowl? Mm -hmm. uh, Europe is going much further. Uh, than we have gone. Some countries, uh, Japan and some of these other countries, uh, with almost no major situations, culturally unacceptable, made transitions. The Japan made a major transition with bullets um, because of sea eagle, again, the endangered species linkage situation on Hokkaido and, and other things. So there's some progress there. We're seeing from the, the the limited data that I've seen, uh, 
increasing evidence of exposure of raptors uh, as a group and scavenger species to lead bullet uh, situations. So using the, the bald eagle as an example, we documented an awful lot of cases real early on, and I'm very confident that 99% at least of that was uh, lead shot, uh, and that that association was Canada geese primarily, which are a large bird being shot at at distances that are, uh, don't kill, uh, but embed the shot, and then when they die of other things and are scavenged on, that shot is ingested. But the bald eagle mortality has not gone away with the transition to non-toxic shot. So where is it coming from? Well, one of the things that started to happen uh, is that people started to use deer carcasses to feed deer, to feed eagles in winter. Is that a source? You know, I don't know. We've got some minor information from that. But when you look at data like uh, ravens and, uh, and elk hunting and, and stuff like that, this can or golden eagles and, and the shooting varmints. Uh, you know, you're getting an increasing picture that, um, okay, we've kind of taken away, taken care of the, the lead shot issue for these species, but now we've got a, an increasing issue because uh, of shifting in food base availability, whatever. In terms of other kinds of hunted species, of course, the morning dove or dove hunting is getting the greatest amount of attention. Um, the data on morning doves, in my opinion, is pretty strong uh, in terms of uh, it's pretty lethal. Uh, the lead is pretty lethal for these doves. And, uh, of course, doves, by their nature, small birds, habitat they're hunted in, uh, those carcasses disappear uh, pretty quick. So you're right back in the invisible disease situation and whatever. But I would suspect that we will move beyond the controversy today and uh, incorporate uh, that species, those two species, white wings and uh, morning doves, uh, within uh, that kind of ban. Eventually, then, you reach a stage where, why do I want to buy two kinds of ammunition? And why do I want to manufacture two kinds of ammunition if there isn't a big enough market out there? So I think doves are a really important species in terms of taking the transition in terms of bird hunting to that ending of no toxic Bullets become a much more complicated situation. You still have the endangered species connection in terms of the uh, uh, the condor, and that's those are good solid data, and that's the kind of science I'm talking about, uh, where you know you can put it down on the table, and and it's irrefutable in terms of uh, because you're handling the birds, you're taking samples, you got them, uh, but when you leave that arena of science. Um, then one needs to be careful that you don't undercut your credibility. Uh, you, your beliefs may all be right on the money, but if you want to cause people to make a change, you need to have uh, information that is compelling enough for that change to take place. And so because we have this other big segment of lead that's being deposited in, in the environment, 
in terms of uh, non-hunting target shooting uh, uh, situations. It's a major hurdle and uh, uh, you can't argue, in my opinion, that there isn't substitute ammunition that will perform well for those other activities that's there, okay? There were, when we made the initial transitions to non-toxic shot, when the government had made the decision, this is where we're going, when the court cases had been filed and defeated, then you saw professional shooters putting out videotapes, and you saw ammunition companies putting out videotapes on how to do it right, mm -hmm. uh, okay, and perform with it. We don't have, we've got some minor amateur uh, efforts at this point in time, and you see a few written articles here and there uh, from people praising uh, the use of uh, copper bullets or, or, or whatever. But it would be awful nice. It'll never happen, I don't think, uh, uh, for reasons I won't comment on. <clears throat> but it would be nice if the Olympics and other international shooting events required this in the sake of going green. That one step is probably the most potent step uh, that could be taken uh, to transition the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Now we've known from very early studies by uh, Roscoe and others in New Jersey of uh, <clears throat> lead poisoning in uh, small mammals and high lead exposures in small mammals and other things at skeet ranges and trap ranges. Under the Clean Water Act, EPA has shut down uh, certain some of the trap fields, skeet fields that I used to shoot at, mm -hmm. uh, like Pelham, New York, like uh, the Remington Gun Club in Lordship, uh, Connecticut. I mean, I used to compete at, uh, on those. My father did. Those were shut down because of lead being deposited in the water. We've got a lot of other situations where we're pouring tons of lead um, in the water, not being commented on. Uh, but nothing is simple, okay? So you, you close down a gun club that's shooting over water. I testified a few years ago here in Wisconsin over one of these clubs that wanted to move its operations from shooting over Lake Michigan uh, to shooting over uh, a agricultural areas which were primary uh, locations for the restoration of the prairie chicken. Okay, mm -hmm. you don't want to stop the activity, shouldn't be trying to stop the activity mm -hmm. that should not ever enter into the equation of why you're doing this, and which is, uh, I think, another fairly significant point. Nowhere in, I think it's a very significant point, nowhere in the entire battles that I was involved with in the 80s, 70s, early 90s, in terms of the lead shot issue, was it ever an anti-hunting issue? There were some people who wanted to portray it as that, but it had nothing to do with that. Because basically, if you accepted the use of non-toxic shot, then you're accepting the use of hunting. So we didn't have hunter versus anti-hunter group. Uh, just didn't exist. 
that was that was developed as an argument by those who didn't want to uh, consider uh, this alternative. But the anti-hunting movement really stayed out of that. And uh, I, I can't recall ever getting in an argument with an anti-hunter over this situation. I can't recall ever seeing any kind of a major diatribe uh, in any kind of a magazine or anything else. Uh, it, it, it all, all that came from other places, did not come from uh, anti-hunting situation. So when you move into the non-hunting situation or the non-fishing situation with lead sinkers, the argument now is, oh, it's anti-guns. Same arguments carry through, they just take a, a, a different, different form. And so that becomes a defensive mechanism of why we can't go there. When in fact, it's science that should drive whether we go or don't go with the kind of data like you have with the California condor program that says we need to protect this species from extinction from this and this is why. Here's the exposure, here's the mortality, mm -hmm. you know, here's what it's costing us uh, to keep this species and do you want to put that much in a species, put it out there and let it get lead poisoned if we don't you know, keep treating these animals, they're going to die anyhow, and we've lost our whole investment. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, it's, it's a tricky line that you're, you're, you're walking here, and it's, you know, getting, I mean, I get, I can get very emotional and, and, and agitated about, you know, these situations and why we should do something. Then I have to stand back and say, uh, well, what's the basis uh, is it just you know my tradition and beliefs? Do I have anything to support that this is in fact uh, an issue that uh, I need to go out there and take action on? Mm -hmm. Right now, groups like the NRA and the NSSF are you know trying to use that argument to say you know you have no science that proves that there's a population level effect. But what I was just talking to to Mark Pocross about is defining what you mean by population level effect. Yeah. You, do you mean that the population is um, going to go extinct? Like were waterfowl populations, you know, were, were there duck species that were, you know, threatened with extinction? No, again, it's the, it's the value to you as the user that I, that I said before. Mm -hmm. So I can only shoot two this year instead of six, all right? It causes me to take action. It isn't worth my while to invest in my boat and my dog, uh, my uh, uh, SUV to get my equipment there, et cetera, et cetera, to shoot two birds, all right? I'll go do it for six or 10 or whatever it is. Population is a, is a faulty concept in terms of the context we're using it here. Let me go back to the question you asked in terms of the difference between contaminants and disease, okay? And disease as in the classical sense of infections and that sort of stuff. That was the argument of why we in biology didn't need to deal with addressing botulism or any other 
kind of disease. That's not an infectious disease, by the way. What you're involved with is uh, compensatory versus additive mortality in terms of that argument. The argument being that if they don't die from disease, they don't die from lead, they'll die from something else. So by letting them die from those things, then the something else doesn't have a chance to kill them. And so there's no change. And so people, and some of the noted ecologists in the world uh, way back, Charles Elton and, um, and uh, others, population e- ecologists, you know, argued that um, disease was natural, it was self-limiting, and, you know. Now, we had a lot of recuperative capabilities in those days. We had a lot more habitat. We had a lot fewer people, uh, and we had a lot fewer insults that were taking animals out of a population. So for certain kinds of diseases, which are density-dependent, uh, you will see cycling distemper and raccoons and you know, mange and foxes and stuff like that. You will see cycling that is going to happen if you allow the populations to get that high. If you allow other things to take animals out before they get that high, you're not likely to see those diseases. And we're in the same kind of situation here, but it's different. And it's different because of public attitudes and values. So population effects can be one if the majority of society feels that this is something that's not acceptable. It may take 10 for a group in society to see that. It may take 100, okay? That 100 or that 1,000 may have absolutely no impact on the population dynamics, but it is a population effect in terms of human values or what's acceptable and what isn't. And probably an analogy, I never thought, just popped into my head and all never thought about it before, but probably an analogy to that would be animal rights thinking and animal care requirements that have come down. You know, do those make any difference in terms of a lot of them? Do they make any difference in terms of the survival of the animal? Uh, Longevity? Maybe, maybe not. The point is that they make a difference in terms of society's viewpoint of the situation, and therefore society acts. And so I cringe every time I hear, uh, when I see things put out in terms of lead sink as well, it has no population effects. That's the wrong argument. Don't allow that argument to drive the situation. The argument has to be social benefit. And you, know, and, and you need to get people involved uh, in terms of making those decisions, not, we're all special interests, so you can't say, you know, a special interest, whether you're a conservationist or uh, a developer or whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we each are driven by our own, and, and so you're never gonna, you're never gonna win an argument in which you try to show what is not showable. Uh, you know, you can sell disease, you can't sell health. Okay, until your health is impacted by 
what is the definition of disease, mm -hmm. impairment, uh, okay, you don't care about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it becomes uh, a real publication, a real public education issue. Yeah, you didn't have, I just cringe every time I see these population impact. What's the threshold for an endangered species of species X? It's going to be different than for species Y because of reproductive capabilities, a lot of other factors, when they mature and, and all of that. So one size doesn't fit all, and uh, you're almost down to fighting case-by-case -case basis. Well, I think there. I think one of the important differences between the lead shot issue and you know the the lead bullet issue is, like you just said, with the lead shot issue, the 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 species that are being affected are game species. So there's a direct benefit for the hunters, right. who are the people who you need to change, who who need but, to but that, change their behavior. Right. Right. And with the lead bullet issue. The only benefits to the hunters, the people who are, you know, who you need to change the behavior, are sort of indirect. That's right. Because they're Absolutely. not species that are being affected. Absolutely. But why does that matter? It just, the, the, the point being is that uh, it's conservationists who um, made the case, not duck hunters who made the case for the change in terms of the... Uh, not that a lot of duck hunters aren't conservationists, but those who are came along early on and helped to you know, join forces. Mm -hmm. There's a much greater potential in terms of the condor thing for anti-hunting movement to step in. That would be a terrible blow to conservation if that happened. Uh, I'm sure you understand that the economics of state conservation agencies is hunting and fishing and trapping licenses that non-hunter has never paid their way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's already happened to a certain extent. You know, it's not as bad as it could be. But, yeah. you know, with, I don't know if you've been following, you know, what's been going on with the, the, uh, the, the lawsuit filed against the EPA to ban no. lead-based ammunition. No, you know, I tangentially, I was, you know, yeah. I mean, I was on the committee, the wildlife, Society committee that put the statement together on uh, uh, lead of uh, non-toxic about lead poisoning and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Again, you know, every organization who collects dues from anybody to survive is uh, leery of losing their base mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their positions, mm -hmm. and that becomes uh, uh, extremely difficult. But I don't think the EPA is the way you go in terms of dealing with this situation. I think it's the wrong organization. What's the right organization? Hunting and fishing. Who permits the use of the of hunting and fishing? It's the state agencies. Okay, mm -hmm. they. I mean, and that's that's the the weakness is that every one of them gets you know jerked around politically. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, at the federal level, you get stuff like the Stevens Amendment that stopped the movement to non-toxic shot without uh, state. You know about the Stevens Amendment? Mm -mm. Fish and Wildlife Service member implemented actions to transition to non-toxic shot. Ted Stevens, who didn't give a damn one way or another about 
lead poisoning or non-lead poisoning, but the strong state's rights advocate, listen to his constituencies, and again, coming from Alaska, federal government shouldn't be telling us how to hunt. So he passed the rider on the Interior Appropriation Bill that prevented the Fish and Wildlife Service from spending a single penny on the implementation of non-toxic shot without expressed request by the state fish and game agencies. As soon as that was passed, you had a bunch of states pass laws prohibiting the use of non-toxic shot. Uh, and the Fish and Wildlife Service couldn't do anything about it. That's why the National Wildlife Federation had to sue the Fish and Wildlife Service using the Endangered Species Act to get any action. They were helping the Fish and Wildlife Service because the Fish and Wildlife Service was absolutely hogtied by the Stevens Amendment. It was, you know, now once the court cases were won, Stevens didn't continue with his amendment and everything then was allowed to move forward. I mean, that was a critical part of the, yeah. of the whole thing. So Fish and Wildlife Service is very, and more so since last decade, two decades of the politicizing the top levels of all government agencies. But I don't, I don't see EPA as the appropriate player in this stuff. But, what, but, but what's going on now sounds very similar to what you just explained, where you have, you know, one group suing, you know, a, a federal organization <laughs> to ban lead-based ammunition, and simultaneously, you know, uh, conservative Republicans in Congress trying to pass a bill that right. would make that... Yeah, and that's all NRA-driven. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so it, it ends up then having to have the scientific information in court. Somebody has to sue, all right? And there were seven or eight. Uh, let's see, I testified for South Dakota. I testified for Florida. I testified for... Hmm, forget, I wrote depositions for another couple. Uh, Testified in three major court cases, wrote depositions for ones in California, which were appeal. Uh, it's really sobering when you're intimately involved with this stuff and you realize how insignificant lead is as an issue compared to other national affairs that Congress are dealing with and what's going on there on those things uh, that are, you know, magnitudes of importance greater in terms of our life, you know. And so it's a very sobering to be in those battles there. Uh, I mean, you know, I got all kind of hate mail, death threats, uh, you name it. Uh, it's, um, it's not a, an easy thing to uh, go through. And uh, uh, I mean, I've been chased down the road after a hearing at a local place by a bunch of people throwing beer bottles at my car and and stuff like that. Uh, uh, I mean, there's, uh, 
it gets very, very volatile, and uh, and you need to be. I, I've seen blatant politics that absolutely could not comprehend in public forums. I've seen people fired almost instantly. Very notable people, uh, including journalists, who had the audacity to uh, write a positive article on, uh, you know, non-toxic shot conversion. I've seen heads of departments removed overnight. Uh, yeah, they, uh, um, that's what it is, you know, uh, and that's what you you get involved with uh, here. And uh, you see all kinds of examples of major disasters that came out of well-meaning situations. And you're sitting in one right here, uh, and you would be in any USG science center. And that was the attempt to create the National Biological Survey conceptually great idea. The way it was done, the way it was done destroyed science and the federal government yeah, in terms of the biological world right. because of the political fallout. And I mean, we're in USGS simply because they had to find some place to stick this. Right. So you're in an agency that doesn't even speak the same language. Right. After discussing the downfall of the National Biological Survey, we refocused and got back onto the topic of how to best approach the lead ammunition issue. I think there's a lot of potential out there to work on a state-by-state -state basis and use, because they're the ones who... Now, I don't know how hunting is you know, empowered or not empowered in terms of the, the state level, but the federal government doesn't have anything to do with it. Right. Okay, so keep the federal government out of it. And, uh, you know, get the, the federal government has to do with it mm -hmm. when it gets to the endangered species. Mm -hmm. And the federal government could pressure a state uh, not that they can stop hunting because it's not their power mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, but, you know, you saw what happened to the Park Service uh, when they said, well, we're going to go to Green Bullets and it got, to, you know, uh, on the other hand, you've got the military out there who have been working for a long time because I've been at some meetings in, Fort Col in uh, uh, Colorado Springs and other places about, you know, the green things they're doing in terms of their, uh, their stuff out there on target ranges and stuff like that. Well, maybe that's another route. Maybe one can work with the military, the largest consumer of ammunition that's out there, mm -hmm. to set the model. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, I mean, um, the, when the, the, the point is it's an unconventional problem, and, and I think one needs to look at some unconventional solutions. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things one might consider uh, is to think about this, who this world is that uh, the inner players in this and uh, could we get several individuals in a facilitated workshop uh, you know you want it run by an independent facilitator who really knows how to facilitate uh, things and, uh, and I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in that when I took this assignment at the 
Salton Sea. It was about the biggest political nightmare you could imagine. And uh, within a year, everybody had taken off their bowling shirts, and uh, uh, we were uh, all value-added to one another in terms of our understanding of the situation and mm -hmm. came away with a really impressive scientific foundation for whatever they want to do mm -hmm. from a management standpoint. Mm -hmm. The groups that claim to represent hunters are making, that, making it difficult for that to happen because you have groups like the NRA and the NSSF that claim to be the organizations that represent hunters, but mm. they're, so, they're so way out on the right that you know, none of these people who I think yeah. would be interested in pursuing that type of thing, I think they're getting pushed away from it because that's the way that hunters are represented in this country at this point. I mean, I don't think hunters really are the way they're represented by the NRA. No, obviously not. Um, but I don't know of an organization that, that represents There isn't. Uh, there isn't. There are, it, the, the basic issue I have with the conservation the NGO part of the conservation community is that it is so fragmented by its own parochial interest of each of those that they miss the synergistic impact of their collective being. And because they don't have that, they don't have a large enough voice uh, to compete uh, with the NRAs and whatever, which don't have that many members, but have a lot of money, okay? And uh, uh, it's always been a frustration for me. But every organization, it goes back to what I said before, in my opinion, is very conscious of what position it takes or doesn't take on something based on what it, how it thinks its membership will respond because that membership dictates who's going to pay dues and who isn't. And they're fighting for strength in terms of headcounts. And that's a tragedy of uh, um, we'd be much better off. It's like saying, well, there's no organization that represents conservation. That is true. And there's no organization that represents fishermen or there are fishermen and hunters are led to believe by the rhetoric that there are people that are speaking for them. Uh, but those speak with, people speak with forked tongue, uh, depending on who they are speaking to, they will deliver a certain kind of message and, uh, and otherwise uh, do whatever. So that, that's, uh, on one hand, it's great to have all these organizations. On the other hand, um, the weakness is that they're disenfranchised from one another. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've belonged over the years to a lot of different organizations, and my, my tenure in those organizations uh, has uh, waned with the positions they've taken. Some have become so extreme that for all the good things they were doing, uh, I couldn't uh, tolerate the degrading of other conservation efforts by that extremism and I just got out it wasn't I just wasn't comfortable in there not that I don't think they're do, they're all doing good work and mm -hmm. do a part but yeah I mean these are bloody battles I mean this is not a uh, this is dog eat dog and uh, literally yeah. mm -hmm. in this case condor eats lead you know but uh, anyway it's uh, um, I'm not going to run out of work you know? Yeah, that's true.
Well, we may run out of resource. That's the problem. And I've been fortunate to work and and visit a a lot of countries, you know, on on conservation issues. And and you see such extreme in terms of uh, um, what's there and what isn't there. Um, There's a lot of reason for despair. Uh, And so it's nice to be able to attach to something that you think is worthwhile uh, and um, satisfies uh, at least a little feeling of, well, make a difference, you know, Mm -hmm. on this issue. I'm not overly optimistic we're going to win on the lead thing in my lifetime. My lifetime is growing short because of my my age, but I don't think I have enough time left uh, for this to be resolved. Um, and um, uh, but that would simply keep it in the time frame that it took to resolve the uh, uh, lead shot issue for waterfowl, and we still haven't resolved lead shot for other species in this country. On the other hand, like I've said before, other other places with different cultures, different beliefs, happens instantly, mm-hmm. over and done with. Yep. You know, I mean. I've been on places in India, I've spent a lot, fair amount of time in India, where you see on these wetlands uh, these stone pillars with engraved, on this day, so-and-so with 10 guests and so many guns killed 3,000 birds, and then they, they're broken down by species. Been in places and seen these massive tiger rugs up on the walls and stuff like that. The point is that India doesn't hunt anymore and every animal is sacred. Mm -hmm. Every animal being sacred has not solved the problem in terms of conservation because now excess animals are destroying the habitat which is becoming more and more limited Mm -hmm. uh, by the crush of people Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that it's not only the species that was being pursued, but other, all these other things in that environment mm-hmm. are going to fall by the wayside. So it, 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 it's just sobering to look at these things and appreciate that uh, the interrelationship of things to one another uh, adds to the real complexity of what we're trying to, to deal with. So, you know, basic question is, um, and I'm just using the condor as a, if the California condor disappeared tomorrow, would it make a difference in terms of um, biological function in that environment? I was working in India when the vultures disappeared, okay? Mm-hmm. And I commented to my colleagues, how come this cow is sitting here with no vultures on it? I've never seen that before, mm-hmm. okay? That was before Riceborough and others got involved mm-hmm. in in terms of trying to figure out what was going on mm-hmm. uh, there. And now, you know, you got these massive uh, things. So for the Parisis, our religious cult, to put their dead up on towers for the vultures to feed on because they believe in reincarnation, had a tremendous impact on terms of now what do they do with their dead? Uh, and, and imagine the social turmoil you know, from that. I can't imagine, you know, being in, involved 
in that kind of a situation. So, you know, have we, are we talking about something that's, we do it because it's the right thing to do, or can we make a connection with um, this as some integral part of services that are provided within the environment uh, that benefits society? Uh, through those interactions. It's too, f too few California condors, I think, to make that connection. That uh, I think you're, you're basically dealing with a charismatic uh, situation and uh, uh, one of, you know, from a biodiversity standpoint, every, uh, every species lost is a tragedy, you know. But uh, others that are arguing we have entered the sixth mass extinction on Earth and this is just the start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, that's totally off the subject, but yeah. uh, I mean, uh, yeah. my only point is, uh, yeah, I know you appreciate the complexity of this more than anyone else when you're digging into and trying to really put something together. It's the value of really having these kinds of things thought about and, and committed down to uh, something that you're showing uh, somebody else to think about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so mm -hmm. tough. You got a tough job. You yeah. really do. <laughs> uh, but. Yeah. All right. That was our archival interview with the founding director of the USGS Wildlife Health Clinic, Milton Friend. Milton has such a vast store of knowledge, and his life's experiences contain true wisdom. Milton was extremely kind to me when I traveled to Madison, Wisconsin for my brief visit to the Wildlife Health Clinic while I was shooting for scavenger hunt, and, and I have not forgotten that kindness and generosity that he showed me. He was constantly sharing valuable nuggets of advice on how to best approach this and, and other conservation issues, and, and it was a pleasure listening back on this interview and, and preparing it for today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Mil Milton's long and storied career, you can head over to the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC114. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC114. You can also watch Scavenger Hunt, my first documentary, uh, which is about the California condor's recovery and the issue of lead poisoning in wildlife. You can find that film at scavengerhuntfilm.com. If you enjoyed this episode of the show today, you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to help us out, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes, which uh, helps new people discover the show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs> <laughs>